Hey everybody, welcome back to the 15th episode of Open Source for Business, brought to you by Open Teams. My name is Henry Badry, and this is the podcast where you can learn from the world's top open source software experts about how to better manage your business's open source technologies. This episode is part two of a conversation I had with Meki McCauley, the leader of IBM Canada's open source strategy consulting practice. Please note that Meki is speaking in a personal capacity in this episode, not on behalf of IBM. Meki is regarded as one of the top open source strategy experts in the world. So if you want to learn about open source strategy, the importance of having one, how you can set one up and measure its ROI, then you have to listen to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Open Teams the first market network where users of open source software can find, vet, and contract with service providers. Open Teams is your single source for everything open source. Now that the introductions are out of the way, let's turn up the music. Just on the topic of uh, the problems that you help clients to solve at the open source consulting practice, what are some of the most common problems that you've been seeing in the past few years? Yeah, it depends a lot on the company. Um, the first thing we do is sort of an open source maturity assessment uh, to say, where are you? You know, do you understand the difference between uh, freeware and open source? Or do you just think that open source is that thing you get for free? Never write a license. Do you know the difference between the GPL and the BSD? You know, just to really get a sense of what they get. Turns out about 80% of companies don't really know what open source is. They just think it, it just means free as in no cost and that other stuff over there. So we do an assessment and say, where's your maturity? The second thing we do is we say, okay, what's your open source footprint today? And this is what gets executives really going. They go, I've heard about this open source thing. Uh, tell me why we should use it. And my first response is you're already using it. You just don't know. And they go, what do you mean? And I'm like, when's the last time you asked your engineers? And they go, Okay, so the second step is we go and we look at what open source they're already using. Turns out 98% of companies are already using open source. They just maybe don't have an approval process. They don't have a catalog. They don't have all these other things. So IBM developed an open source management product um, that allows you to create this catalog to have an administrator go in and approve certain things and others and create an internal portal for downloading of open source packages and software for companies so that they can actually track their usage and their associated legal obligations. It also allows them to track their risk footprint of here's all the different things you're using it. Here's a, an exposure notification. Now you know exactly who has it where and you can go and fix it. Those things are complicated. And when you just go and download a free software somewhere and you don't really know where it's used within the organization, that's risk. So we go and we figure out what they're doing with that. Once we get those basics underway and we sort of tie it into the traditional change management processes, security management processes, auditability and tracking and so on, then we say, okay, you got your own house in order. Now, how can you go up to the next level? And the next level of the maturity model is once you get past just saving money by using free stuff and you're looking at total cost of ownership, what are you going to get by contributing to open source? And very few companies contribute to open source. And it's not because they're leeches or they just want to take. And we see a lot of accusations of that to me. It's because, frankly, they don't understand what's in it for them. They think, why would I do that? So we help explain to them where the value is in encouraging their employees to participate safely in ways that add to their business. 
turns out there's a lot of value. For example, off the top of my head, if you want to extend something and you create an extension from your own and you hold it locally, every time that product updates, you have to maintain that and repatch it and you end up with technological debt. And that's really expensive to maintain. If you take that, open source it, push it up to the community and it gets integrated in the core product, boom. Your, your, your maintenance is handled for you, and you don't have to worry about that legacy component sitting around inside your organization. In larger organizations, that's a huge savings. And they go, oh, all I have to do is get it out there probably. Well, no, you have to think about it. You have to do it properly, but there's absolutely ways to do this. How many custom integrations do you have that you're managing right now? And their eyes roll into the back of their head and all that kind of stuff. As we grow, we get them further along the maturity level until their participation in those communities is informing how they're going to create new services and new products in their business to reach new customers or address new problems that existing customers have. And that's traditional business strategy. But you have to get the foundation in order first. And very few companies are far enough the open source maturity model that they can start considering these new business uh, uh, tactics, if you will, um, because they finished the bottom rungs. Usually they're not. And the bottom rungs, I should point out, it's not a do once and go away. It's a do once and then keep doing in an agile fashion, but at least get it up and running. Okay. And one thing that I think hit home for me was when you you're saying uh, that it's much better to open source something you have internally because something that Travis Oliphant, the CEO of my company says is you're not just uh, having to pay money now to maintain this thing, but it's in the future. You're going to have to continue to maintain this thing. So you're, you're saving money both now and in the future if you can open source it. But many people, I think, wouldn't know that open source communities are quite fickle. Uh, you've got to be quite careful with the way that you come in as an, as an enterprise. Some of them are quite adverse to enterprises coming in and getting their hands in the cookie jar. So what are some best practices for working with those open source communities? What have you seen work and what have you seen not work? Great question. Um, number one thing to remember is just hire an expert in open source community management interaction. You're, these communities can be distinct, sometimes contradictory, and learning those rules and learning how to interact with them can be a full-time job. You don't want to just throw your engineers at it and, ah, oh, you figure that out. It is a specialty. So number one is don't try to figure it all out yourself. Hire someone who's an expert. And that might not be me. My expertise isn't really in the individual communities, although I do know them. There are some excellent community managers out there. And there are people that work remotely, consultants, whatever, and say, look, here's what I want to do, but I know I don't understand the culture I'm getting involved in. And I want to make sure I don't destroy things by stepping on the wrong feet or approaching the community inappropriately or not knowing the norms and so on and so forth. And they'll say, thank you. I know exactly what you mean. I'm happy to be that interface for you. And they become that connection between those communities for your engineers. And that's better for you because then your engineers can focus their high value time on the engineering instead of focusing their high value time on becoming a community management expert. And uh, let's be honest, engineers stereotypically aren't the best at that. And that's a big fiction in open source communities. Why would we want to encourage that in a business? There's no value in that. So number one, 
but an expert. Number two, if you're creating it yourself, a new community, that's even harder and get a team of experts because creating a new community is more than a one person job. And it's so much harder than just put the source code out there or put it on GitHub or whatever. It's a lot more complicated than that. You're going to disappear in that long tail of a million projects, as you mentioned at the beginning. No one's going to ever find you and your value is not going to turn out there. So it turns out there's a lot more related to public relations and marketing and communication in how you develop open source communities than there is related to engineering. And that's very off-putting for people. So when I talk about contributing to open source projects, one of the things I talk about a lot is non-code contributions. For mature open source projects, after a certain point, X additional line of code adds marginal value. But communication, marketing, documentation, PR, those add huge value to the community. And so understanding where the community is in what phase and how that's going to grow and what's the, the next piece to add the most value is extremely important as well. Okay. And what about the idea of funding? Because some people think that it seems quite difficult to think that throwing money at a, a team of contributors and saying, hey, here you go. Great work. Thanks for letting us use your software. I hope this will can allow you to continue to maintain into the future. Does that work? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. It is one that comes up. Um, I think the models that work best for throwing money sort of to the community as a whole is when it's established organization giving money to established organization. So for example, Red Hat absolutely contributes money and non-financial resources to upstream communities. IBM does as well. You'll also see the Mozilla Foundation does it, uh, the Apache Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. You also see government entities doing it in some cases. Uh, the Knight Foundation in the US will do it. It's quasi-governmental grant organization. I think those work really well. I think individual companies um, donating to established communities is a bit strange because um, it's going to be unfocused and there's not going to be a clear connection between the money and the return. Uh, there's an opportunity cost for that money. So what else could you be spending that money on? Could you be hiring a member of that community to do a specific type of development that is useful specifically to you? Well, that's contributing to the community as well. Just because you're handing it to a specific a pocket of a particular community member rather than just the community as a whole doesn't make it any less valuable. And I think that that should be celebrated, right? Uh, there are many programmers who join these communities who are interested in doing consulting services to expand uh, what goes on in those communities. And I think uh, smaller businesses should be encouraged to do that. And then it really comes down to as well, why aren't you hiring them as employees? Do you have not enough work for a full-time employee? but then it's becoming part of your strategy. So why or why not? So there's always some sort of dependency questions of what's going on there. So I'd say, think about what the purpose you want the money to realize is. Is it just feel good? Uh, or is it to develop something for your business? Uh, is it to ensure that the community can survive so it still sticks, or, sticks around? In which case, maybe you're better off um, helping that community get more corporate sponsors. Your time connecting them to corporate sponsors and grant uh, applications for big grants may be more valuable than the money you hand them. Sometimes non-financial contributions are more valuable. So I'd say think more deeply about what you're trying to achieve and then narrow down the focus on that. 
Yeah. Okay. I know you mentioned something before ROI, which is difficult in the sense of open source strategy, because you have uh, these executives, which I think don't, at least my understanding from talking with people on the podcast is executives see open source and they're still learning. It's quite new. Uh, they're trying to understand business value, but it always comes back to ROI. So I'd like to ask two questions about ROI. So how do you measure the ROI of contributing back to an open source project that you rely on? And then secondly, uh, how do you then measure the ROI of a, an, a company project that you open source uh, and make available to everyone? Right, right. Um, so one of the advantages of having done a PhD in business is that I, uh, I have the advantage of knowing the economics foundations of where many of these buzzwords and metrics come from. Forgetting open source for a second, ROI is extremely difficult to measure, period. Not just for open source, but for all strategies. And most measures of ROI that seem clean are actually bullshit. We have no good way of measuring ROI, period, for anything. So when you realize that, suddenly adding open source to that mix doesn't really change it that much. You realize that you were doing fuzzy hand-waving arguments all along and that maybe trying to do your strategy by spreadsheet, that's what we call it, it, is not the way you should be doing strategy because numbers are very precise lies in that they give you a false sense of exactitude, whereas the numbers themselves come from terrible inputs. And, ter and generate terrible outputs. So ROI is extremely imprecise. I would say if you are stuck on ROI for measuring your projects, do it the exact same way for open source. Just make sure that your time window is big enough. So ROI depends on a sliding time window to decide when that return is going to happen and what the percentage is. Um, it's based on accounting principles that have to have clean ends to denote everything that happens before that. It also depends on having measurements in all the right categories. The number one mistake that people make when looking at ROI for open source is they're only looking in one cost or revenue category where it's actually providing a return on investment in many different categories. Mm -hmm. It's just not as obvious in those categories. And it's also providing returns on many different timeframes. It's just not as obvious on those timeframes. So let me give you a simple example, the maintenance discussion we had. How much do you spend on maintaining um, code debt today? How much would that drop if you spent money to get everything ready to open source it and then maintained it, that gives you a nice clean equation that you can turn into an ROI. But it assumes that you can actually measure how much you spend on code debt today. Most uh, product managers can't actually tell you. They know it's annoying, but they don't know what portion of their expenditures is on the code debt. They can't really split hours because measuring those things is really hard. So that, that's what I would say about that. Um, the second part of your question was more about ROI for open sourcing something that's closed before. Yeah. So we actually have some research on that specifically in the business literature that um, 
puts a bunch of tests out there. You have a closed source thing today. How do you know if you should open source it? And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I can provide some links uh, to the uh, uh, to the listeners of the podcast if you'd like to read more about it. But the short answer is, if you're going to look at one thing, it's popularity. That thing that you're going to open source, if it drastically increases its popularity and you can curate that increased popularity through your open source strategy, then you should do it. If it's not going to increase its popularity or you don't know how to increase its popularity, there's no point because you're not going to get that return from doing so. The return comes from many eyes and many participants. And most of the things that are just released, they don't become popular, so there's no return of value. That's really the most important factor to, to focus on. A second factor would be the degree to which um, you're undermining your current business model without substituting a strong new business model. So if all of your revenue is coming from licensing, well, I mean, don't just shoot yourself in the foot and go oh, open source strategies fail. Think about how you're going to replace that revenue as, uh, as you do it. Uh, otherwise... You know, uh, uh, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't open source it. But those cases are small, and the explanation I give to people is, who are your customers? Are your customers in the software business? So I had this debate with um, a company that made uh, software for hospitals, and they said, "Oh no, we don't want to open source it because you know we're going to lose all our money." I said, "Okay, what do you think is going to happen?" Well, the the hospitals are just going to take it and use it. And I'm like, "Okay, what is their competitive advantage?" He looks at me and says, what do you mean? I said, what is a hospital's competitive advantage? Oh, patient care. Okay, so how is patient care competing with your knowledge in software development? And he went, uh, and I'm like, do you think they're going to set up a software business, take your source code, compile it, provide support for it, and sell it to other hospitals? He went, no, that's nuts. Exactly. So people fear competition a lot more than is realistically going to happen. Most companies don't want to get into the business you're in. It's, it's just not their business. And when you actually think about that, the threat is actually considerably lesser. What do you get from open sourcing it? Oh, shit. Well, now hospitals all around the world are suddenly interested and maybe it popularizes. That's really interesting. Right. And so, yeah. Back onto the idea of measuring the ROI of contributing back to a project. One analogy I've heard previously is this idea that you have to think about it as, as though it's infrastructure or say a road. It's difficult to directly measure the impact that a road has on society. But if you look at things like the amount of uh, people who can drive on it to get to work or even people who are carrying freight and that kind of thing, like you really need to look at those indirect uh, measurements to be able to effectively calculate it. I absolutely love that analogy. Um, I, I was watching a TV show yesterday with an excellent writer uh, who made the analogy to Rome, that when Rome was founded, it was just a bunch of displaced farmers from other wars. But what made Rome great was the road, that it built road uh, connections everywhere to improve commerce and to improve military conquering. And that was really the true Roman innovation that made it great. I think that's a great analogy that is absolutely true in open source. Building roads between other people is what adds value to the whole ecosystem and everybody becomes uh, stronger as a result. Great analogy. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all yours. Uh, and another thing too, I was, I finished the Genghis Khan book, essentially 
goes through his life and he found that one of the biggest factors to improving the trade between all of these nations and basically from one side of the world to the other, they had the Silk Road, was actually positioning guards and making it safe. And once they made it safe, everyone was crossing it and trade flourished. And one thing that really fascinated me about Genghis Khan was I didn't really know about his fall or what happened to his empire, but I think he was getting very close, or at least his great-grandson or great-great-grandson, whatever it was, um, was getting very close to achieving his vision of unifying the world. But it was the bubonic plague that came. And since they were the ones managing all the ports and, and facilitating all of the commerce, the bubonic plague spread on rats. And so rats were actually holding this and spreading it around and killing all of their little groups around the world. And so... It's quite fascinating. I wanted to see what happened if they didn't have that bubonic plague. Well, and I'm delighted you bring that up because um, there's a number of studies going on right now on the effect of COVID-19 on open source participation. And I think that's actually closely related and fascinating. Red Hat put the guards around all the roads to make it safe to use it in your enterprise environment. Uh, but what has happened because of COVID to all of those core projects that depends on it, I think that's a beautiful research paper. <laughs> yeah, we could add that to the list too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so over the years, how have open source strategies evolved? What did they look like 10 to 15 years ago versus what they look like today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, start with the books uh, from um, Christy Bona and colleagues, Open Sources, Voices from the Revolution, uh, originally released in 1999. It's a collection of essays, including from Bob Young, the founder of Red Hat, um, Eric S. Raymond, one of the original uh, uh, you know, open source movement founders, Bruce Perrins, um, and a bunch of others. And um, they tell that original story. It's what I like to call open sources 1.0. It's how um, the collective need to scratch similar itches makes people want to support each other. And they have individual incentives that it's easier to reuse what other people use and share and build upon than become experts themselves in, in those things. That was the original motivation. And then each one talks about what they did to build on that. So Larry Wall talks about the creation of Pearl and how Pearl derived from art concepts and uh, you know all the movements that came out of that. And then um, Tim O'Reilly talks about the founding of O'Reilly and how a publishing business came around that idea of wanting to share and learn and all of these different models just from the fact that people wanted to scratch similar itches. Um, it then evolved to, okay, we have this collective stuff, but what can we build upon it where the collective stuff is the core, but we're providing a value add in a service form. So it was the, everything is a service, everything as a service, product to service shift, servicifying of things. And this happened both in closed source and open source worlds. It was not just about building the product, but it was how do we get the product to end users who don't care about the product, who have a specific itch themselves, but don't want to scratch it themselves with the product. They want us to scratch it for them. That's the service model. And that's the open sources 2.0, 2006 update. 
to the book, Christy Bona and colleagues, and they expanded drastically in all the new business models that came out as the result of that. And I'm working on a draft uh, for Open Sources 3.0 uh, as uh, one of the editors, and I'm hoping to get Christy Bona and O'Reilly wow, uh, awesome. on, on board for this. Uh, Josh um, Simmons, who's the head of the Open Source Initiative, a few other people have tentatively said, yes, yes, Mackie, we'll, we'll join you on this, um, because I believe we're in a third era now, Open Sources 3.0, which I call uh, Enterprise Open Source Strategy. And that's where open source isn't just technology. Open source isn't just in IT. Open source is in every area of the business. And it's really indistinguishable from core business strategy. And we talked about a lot of those. To me, that's the evolution over the past 20, 25 years. You really are the wizard when it comes to open source strategy and enterprise. <laughs> we needed to get you either a crown or a wizard hat, the king of open source strategy. The open street map community has a cape. They have a feathered open source uh, open street map cape that they give to people at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can get your hands on one of those. I'll get you a hat. I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I promise to wear it on our next video cast. <laughs> Perfect. I definitely yeah, would love to have another chat. And I know we've talked about a lot of, um, it's mainly been open source strategy. And with this next question I want to ask, I think we've covered it at different points throughout the podcast. But I thought maybe if you could crystallize what the key components were of an effective open source strategy. Sure, absolutely. Um, key component number one, it has to be a strategy. The key word is strategy. It's not just why are products that are open source superior to products that are closed source? That's an old argument. That's a great product strategy. It's a great IT strategy. It's not a corporate open source strategy. So the key word is strategy. What do we mean by that? How do you make money? What's your competitive advantage? And by competitive advantage, we mean what do you do that no one else can easily do themselves such that it's not worth it for them to try and push you out of that thing. That's competitive advantage. Those are the two key elements. How do you make money? What's your competitive advantage? And then it's, are you sure that you can do that? Or can you design a way that you can do that without worrying about intellectual property protection? And I would argue that Primarily, you're talking about copyright and patents. Trademarks, maybe you do want to keep that because maybe that is something that's easier to protect. So, for example, you'll note most open source communities, including the Open Source Initiative, do keep the trademarks themselves because they want to be able to use it as an assurance seal. The source code is all there. You can recompile it yourself, but you can't use our Firefox logo. That's property of Mozilla. So don't call it Firefox, call it Ice Weasel, and it can be in your Debian release and that's fine. Same source code, doesn't matter. So maybe trademarks you want to keep, um, but certainly you're not making money off those trademarks, or if you are, you're being careful about that being its own strategy. And that's not necessarily the core part. So I mean, I'll, I'll dial that back a little bit because Mozilla did do that successfully for a little while. They licensed their brand, their trademark, uh, first to Google and then to Yahoo as part of their search engine connection, their ability to do that. So there can be value in that, but that's really sort of a, a brand licensing strategy that could happen whether or not you're also doing something in terms of open source products. So. So what do we have? We had uh, strategy, um, not depending your strategy on um, 
uh, intellectual property restrictions. And then I would say community. Community, community, community is just something that comes up in open source. Understand that the old not invented here syndrome, as we like to call it, destroys businesses. Uh, no matter who you are, there are smarter people outside your corporate boundaries. That's just reality. That's how it is. It used to be in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you could go and hire the smart people, put them inside your corporate boundaries and suck their brains for their career. You can't do that anymore. The smartest people are all around the world. You can't be sure to bring them all in. So you have to build connections to the communities where they're involved to get that brain power and learning how to do that efficiently. Viewing communities as allies, as partners, as necessary parts of your strategies, not as cost centers, um, you know, uh, communication, PR. PR is the worst one. Companies that think open source is a PR thing, I just, you know, they're wasting their money because people are smart and they see right through that stuff. If your open source is all PR and there's no substance to community involvement, you're just going to be ignored. And we see this all the time. We see these debates in online communities. So strategy first and foremost, uh, make sure you understand where your value is and make sure you have community connections. Those are the core elements. Community is really the heart. Without the community, blood's, blood's not going to pump to the rest of the body. So really, it is the key thing that I think enterprises need to be aware of. Absolutely. To wrap this up, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, since you have so much experience in open source strategy and uh, working with businesses on that topic, what are some of the trends? Uh, maybe it's not related to open source strategy, but what are, what are some of the key trends that you think companies need to be aware of in the coming decade? Sure. And, uh, you know, this goes with my comment about buzzwords um, earlier. So, um the first trend is a meta of a number of buzzwords. It's abstraction layers. So we have seen abstraction layers being added in computing since the dawn of computing. Um, the um, ability to separate operating system from uh, run space software, that was an abstraction layer. The ability to separate memory from physical disks to uh, running only on RAM. Um, all the different components and computer architectures, which we call the layers in the stack, are successfully greater abstractions. When we, the open source movement was started, arguably the free software movement in 1985 with Richard Stallman, we didn't really have a big distinction between hardware and software. Hardware was the expensive stuff, and software was just that thing that made the hardware run. It wasn't something that you would divorce from the hardware as its own abstraction layer that could run on any hardware, and then you'd make money off that. That's what Bill Gates figured out with the original basic. He was able to abstract how to write software independent of the hardware, and Microsoft exists because of that. We're continuing to see those abstraction layers accelerate. So after operating system, we got to virtual machines. How could we take a whole operating system, everything runs on it, and not care about the hardware below that operating system. And now we've gone from virtual machines to containers. And containers look a lot like virtual machines, except they're more like applications and their environments containerized. It's a different abstraction layer. So you can have containers running on VMs, running on hardware. 
you're going to continue to see more abstraction layers. And if you'd ask this question to someone who likes buzzwords, they'd say containers is the future. And I think that's a mistake the way people said VMs are the future. Maybe they're the future for the next two or three years, but what's going to happen for the next hundred years is newer and newer types of abstractions that we don't even have buzzwords for yet. After containers, there will be another abstraction, and we're already seeing them starting to play out in the various spaces, mostly in cloud. So, for example, we're now seeing um, functions as existing on their own that you can speak to directly in microservices architectures. Those aren't necessarily containers, but it's another abstraction layer. So we're now splitting our source code to go to these sockets of sort to do things in ways that's never been done before. That's a new abstraction layer. After that, five years is gonna be another one. So be aware of abstraction layers as they arrive and decide which ones are valuable for you to invest in early and which ones are valuable for you to wait and say, let's wait till that's more standardized before I invest in it. So if your competitive advantage is based on being very fast to new technologies and new ways of doing things, get on board quickly. If your technology, if your competitive advantage is based on using established standards where other people have worked out the kinks, then wait until you go to the next level of abstraction. It depends on the business. So that's, I'd say, the number one trend to look at. The number two trend is going to be jurisdiction problems. We've already seen this. We have hit the point where most of the people around the world who control uh, laws have finally accepted that the internet is not a fad, and they actually need to sort out jurisdiction on the internet. 25 years ago, they decided to ignore it. Uh, we saw the disasters with the DMCA. Um, we've now hit the point where we know that the internet's not going away, and so we actually have to sort out the fact that basically everything on the internet is illegal because everything violates one or another states because if you look at all the jurisdiction on, on the planet, there are mutually exclusive complementarities. So how do we sort that out? We do not have any global treaties around things that exist on the internet. We still depend on where is the server physically located and where is the person connecting to that server physically located. And then we end up with all of these permutations of rights and laws and corporate versus criminal, and it's a mess. And what we're going to see in the next 10 years is very rapid changes in that space. We've already seen it with the GDPR. The GDPR is the largest transformation in this space since the DMCA, and it's affected the whole planet. We've seen the loss of very recent history, the uh, Privacy Shield Agreement uh, with the U.S. that said if you were under the Privacy Shield Agreement, you were probably complying with the GDPR. The European Union Supreme Court just said, ha no. So now all kinds of companies have to completely change what they're doing from a tech perspective for managing data privacy. This type of new GDPR changes everything is going to rapidly accelerate. We're going to see more and more of these companies, not just out of the European Union, but out of other jurisdictions. And everybody's going to have to adapt until some sort of treaty is sorting that out. It's going to be a nightmare, frankly. Uh, but that's why there are certain companies that specialize in this kind of stuff like IBM, like a number of the other uh, systems integrators out there. Those are the two key trends that I would say are, are coming. Last one, just for, for kicks. Um, the majority of the workforce very soon, globally, will no longer remember a world before the internet. My generation, I'm 40, my generation is the last generation that remembers the world before the internet. I remember 
dial-up. I remember BBSs. I remember all of these things. Um, in the next 20 years, as my generation exits the workforce, literally everybody below us only understand the planet as interconnected. And that's going to be the biggest generational shift in every industry ever, because it's removing that limitation of, but what if we're not online? That doesn't exist anymore in 20 years. Online is just the default. Everything is interconnected. And we're going to see business models emerge from that that we can't even conceptualize today. That Even guys like me can't conceptualize today because I still have an inherent bias of, but what if my neck goes down? That's just not going to be a thing in 20 years. Three, three large futurist trends. <laughs> no, I love that. We could definitely, we'll come back in the next episode. We'll see maybe five years down the track we'll do Maybe that's the fifth or sixth or tenth time you come on by then, but we definitely, <laughs> maybe we'll have a beer too and we'll see how those predictions um, come out. Beer and open source go well together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do, they do. COVID, I think, has accelerated that um, transformation and to Absolutely. the internet. So I think that's definitely digitization. If you haven't digitized in this period or what it was, 2020, I think a lot of companies have just, those ones who didn't digitize and failed to definitely fell. Um, and if they haven't, then they definitely will very soon but thank you so much for your time Mickey. it's been so great to have the My wizard pleasure. of open source strategy on <laughs> and yeah hopefully we're going to do this again soon this was delightful thank you so much for inviting me and uh i i love what you're doing i think this is extremely valuable i uh, I, I look forward to what you're going to do next thank you and to everyone listening if you like this video and you're watching on youtube then please leave a like and subscribe to see more content like this and if you're listening on a podcast then please leave a review and again let us know what you think that really does help out so thanks very much everyone thanks for listening thank you Mecky, and stay safe y'all until next time thanks everyone